Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Today I had a chat with Aaron Byersmith, the CEO of Beyond Games, a games company based out of San Francisco, California. The company is a distributed games company with teams operating from several locations. Aaron started his games career in 2010 when he founded his first games company, Foundation Games. This podcast is brought to you by Playtest Cloud, who make playtesting mobile games easy and convenient. Get videos of real players playing your game so you can make decisions based on player feedback. I've been using Playtest Cloud for years, and it's always been so revealing in what you can actually find out from real players playing your game or even an early prototype. Playtest Cloud has their own player pool of about 160,000 players, so you can choose exactly the sort of players you'd want to have in your playtest right on their website. They support targeting by player age, gender, and what other games they've been playing. They handle all the logistics behind playtesting, including getting your builds to the players safely. They also have NDAs in place for all the players, and their software deactivates the game automatically after the playtest. So testing in-development games is no problem. And the best thing is that you can get started right away. No SDK or code changes required. Just upload the build file on their website and you'll be watching videos in no time. Give it a try at playtestcloud.com and mention that Elite Game Developers sent you. Hi, Aaron. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jakob. Thanks for uh, having me. Pleasure to have a chat with your background and everything. We're going to be hearing about you now, so it's going to be fun. Absolutely. I'm excited to dive in. Good. So can you start off with telling a bit about your background and how you got into the game industry. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the specific entry point was roughly a decade ago, actually a decade ago as of February this year, uh, when I started my first company, which was called Foundation Games. Started it from my college dorm room in East Tennessee. Prior to that, I'd certainly been interested in entrepreneurship. I call it my armchair entrepreneurship period. Had a lot of ideas. None of them ever really got off the couch and out in the world. but. It's actually funny thinking about prepping kind of for this podcast and just my journey. I have a LinkedIn email from when I was 16 that I'd written up and was using to try and raise funding for a social network called eLife. Terrible, terrible name. But you know, back then, you know, this was pre-Facebook even being bigger than MySpace. I had just started using Facebook as a high school student. And for whatever reason, I thought I could do better. And it's insane to kind of look back and think that, wow, I was definitely interested in entrepreneurship at a, at a young age. I'm not even sure why, but it became a, a passion of mine. And ultimately, one of the investors who did respond to me when I was 16, he did not fund eLife, uh, thankfully, because it probably would have been an enormous failure. But when I was 19, was the first one to put a check into Foundation Games when I approached him and said, hey, I'm still thinking of ideas. You know, there's this whole app store. People are making money on it. It's only been out for about a year or so. I'd love to start a gaming company. Are you in? And he wrote me a 10K check, which felt like an infinite amount of money. And you realize how little that is very quickly. But that was kind of how it all started from kind of, you know, the armchair entrepreneurship days to the point where I actually started to build a real company. Right. So you didn't have like, you know, entrepreneurship in your family or anything like that? My uncle, Kevin, has been an entrepreneur for a long time. So more in the telecom industry here in the United States, he's built several successful telecom companies. So definitely some inspiration there. He was actually really helpful in connecting me with my first set of investors beyond this initial one. And so, yeah, no, I can certainly point to him as a early mentor of mine and, and somebody that you know I could kind of look to and, and, and see was doing stuff in the space. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, for me, it's my mom's side. Everybody's nice. an entrepreneur. It's like, you know, I can't really say who wouldn't have been an entrepreneur there. So it's pretty wild here in Finland. 
But yeah, going into your first games company. So that was basically the time that Zingo was coming up and there was Facebook was the place to have a games company really operating in. But you skipped that and went directly to mobile. What was that and how were you looking at the space at that time? I think it was a decision around just trying to go to a space that didn't have the competition. It was early, didn't have the competition. At the time, to your point, like Facebook games was where the focus was at. And just the insane period of growth looking back on it, like it almost makes me want to cry to think about the CPIs that they were getting back in the day and just the virality that they could drive prior to Facebook really cutting off those channels. And yeah, you're right. You know, this is pre-Zynga's IPO. This was pre-Zynga really even thinking about mobile. And I initially saw an opportunity because once again, I'd raised 10 grand. I think I got second place in a business plan competition at the University of Tennessee. So I put three grand in. So we had $13,000. And I was like, what can we do that's going to let me get something to market really quick and test this idea out? And as a way to de-risk the creation of new IP and bringing that to the mobile market, I focused actually on licensing. So I would go to Flash game developers and say, hey, I will take on the financial risk of porting this to mobile and trying to grow it. And I'll give you a rev share on the back end. And so I would try and negotiate 85% or so for myself for taking all the financial risk on it. And that's how we got our first couple of games out the door. The first was Dropple, which had been a really hard keyboard-based flash game that I translated over to mobile by using the accelerometer. So you kind of controlled this constantly bouncing ball and tried to get him through a level without killing him, basically. And it was interesting because, you know, the Flash developers just weren't thinking about mobile. Nobody was thinking about mobile. And it's insane to look back with everything that has happened. And it was actually a really easy sell for me to get the license to the point that Like I went to King and I'm still killing myself about this because, you know, I did not think to attempt to license their highly successful match three IP at the time (laughs) and went after a crazy goofy game called Mushroom Madness, where you tried to protect a little grove of mushrooms from critters that were running out of the forest and you could use weapons and stuff. And I thought, oh, people will be tapping all over this and it'll be a ton of fun. And I should have paid more attention to the games. Actually, my grandma and I have this funny running dialogue because she played Bejeweled like crazy. And I kept seeing Bejeweled, Bejeweled, and I should have made the connection. That would have been (laughs) such a great one to work with. But yeah, you know, that ultimately got to the point where I licensed Ravenwood Fair, which at the time was the only non-Zynga IP in the top five grossing on Facebook. And that was another story of Lolaps was not thinking about mobile. And that ultimately led to its own pain. We could talk about, you know, more when they got acquired and their acquirer wondered why they'd given up, you know, 80% of their mobile revenue to a small studio run by a 21-year-old. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it seems crazy to be talking about this where people just did not think mobile was going to be a thing. But I chose it because I figured it was the lowest barrier to entry and the opportunity was there. And looking back on it, that's one thing I certainly called right, despite all the mistakes. <laughs> Did you have kind of expectations when you were starting off? Was like, you're going to just try everything? Or what was the expectation level there? The expectation, the hope was certainly to get a game out and hopefully ride the kind of early platform wave, get an Apple feature or something, and just get enough downloads to make the second game. I actually, in some ways, didn't have extremely high expectations when I started it. I just thought, you know, there are people who are making 500,000 to a million bucks a year on this, you know, putting out these games for the brain, like these, you know, the really, really early, early apps to the store. I think it evolved over time, as you saw the success of like, you know, Angry Birds comes on the market, Cut the Rope. Another one that really kind of struck a chord with me was Infinity Blade. I think a lot of people forget that that was one of the first like high fidelity mobile games, I believe built on Unreal. It just looked gorgeous. It really showed the power of natively building the user experience around these touch controls, right? With how you swiped, you know, to dodge and attack with the swords and stuff. And so we looked at games like that, that were very much premium dollar, dollar 99 games with content pack releases over time as the early opportunity. And so my hope initially was Let's get a successful you know, game out the door, licensing some Flash, generate enough revenue to begin building our own IP. And then we would have pointed it very much and did in some ways point it towards the direction of those titles and those companies that I mentioned. 
very focused on the premium kind of gaming wave, which looking back on it, people forget that's how it started on mobile too. Like nobody was doing free to play and no one really even knew much about designing free to play games. They were all doing that on Facebook and nobody was paying attention to mobile. And it was kind of like everybody was trying to stay and stick with the Facebook platform, even though it was already being closed down, like all the viral feeds and everything by Facebook. So I guess it was kind of like a shock as well for the developers, what was happening. Absolutely. I think in many ways, when you find something that's working that well, it's incredibly hard to transition out. And we saw that in Zynga's post-IPO struggles, right? Like they failed to move to mobile quick enough. And I think in some ways, they're still paying for that. They certainly recovered and are doing better. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, and then you also just have the whole trend of some of the early mobile successes. You know, MZ is a really good example. They found something that worked and they've just continued to kind of double down on it. And in some ways, haven't innovated enough to continue that trend. And they certainly had a great ride, but it appears at least, you know, from the outside becoming to an end. So I think it's certainly something I have learned over the entrepreneurial journey is really try and constantly be looking for what is next and what's going to eat the lunch currently working on because it's an ever-changing space despite what people may say about, oh, the same companies that are dominating the charts are still dominating the charts. Like We're beginning to see the free-to-play model, kind of the second wave, in my opinion, of that. And it's fascinating to look because you have these companies that catch the first wave and then struggle with the second one, right? And some live or die by that moment and their ability to transition over to it. Yeah, and then the ones who capitalized on the network effects like Supercell mm-hmm. are still up there yep. for years. Yeah, Supercell is a great example. You know, Heyday. Heyday was Farmville with a better interface and, you know, mobile first. So yeah. it's their success was almost just Zynga being slow to the platform. You know, I very much believe if Farmville had been earlier, I'm not sure Heyday would have done as well, right? So in many ways, Supercell was like my dream with Foundation Games was to take something that was working really, really well on you know, Flash or Facebook or whatever it may be and translate that to mobile and then you know, pick up on the mobile wave. So going back to like your company, Darren, you dropped out of school and you hired a team or how did it go? So I didn't drop out of school initially. But I did hire a team. We scaled to 27 full-time people pretty quickly within 18 months, predominantly in two locations, one in Sydney, Australia, and one in the Philippines in Manila. Found a really talented, initially outsourced dev team there and was early enough with that company and close enough with the founder that we were able to actually carve out a dedicated team and eventually start to split bills and in many ways helped him. The company is still around Secret Six, phenomenal group of uh, designers and artists out in the Philippines, uh, but was really early in when he started to build an engineering team out there and helping him kind of by providing a really stable kind of contract. And then eventually, like I said, we split our team off and we're in a different portion of the building, but still sharing internet costs and things like that. And then Sydney was its own interesting thing. A lot of people are like, why did you, an entrepreneur in Tennessee, find a team in you know Sydney or why were you even looking over there? I initially needed a game designer and I found a really talented game design student who was about to graduate and ultimately built a team around him in Sydney. And later, the company that did LA Noir, and I'm blanking on the a Team Bondi, I think, that was a rock star studio. Rockstar after LA Noir cut that team. And so there were about 200 or so people who lost their jobs in that. And there was not a very big game community, I guess, in Sydney at the time. So we kind of got to cherry pick some really talented people coming out of that studio to build around over time. So it ended up working out, but we were highly distributed from the beginning. So how did you approach people at the other end of the world, basically? Like, were you just online hanging around at different sites and figuring out people who are in the industry or well, how did that go? A lot of LinkedIn outreach and a lot of Google searching. Many right. of the people who I hired, I simply found their portfolio by you know just Google searching until I found somebody. And then once we'd kind of established the initial kind of core hires, a lot of it was organic. Like I said, just the network in, in, in Sydney and even in Manila was pretty tight knit if you were working in games. And so once people realized there was a, a kind of mobile dev, you know, and like I said, a lot of people had lost their jobs and did not want to. I mean, I hired a designer who had lost his job and was working at Pizza Hut 
or Domino's or whatever the one is in Australia. And so it was interesting, you know, they would find out about us and then we kind of got to cherry pick resumes, build the team that way. But yeah, just a lot of hardcore Google front work to find and source talented people. That's cool. And then did you raise funding for the company there? How was those investor meetings like? We did. You know, Foundation Games for sure was like this perpetually undercapitalized company. I think in general, I raised the first 13K. About six months later, my uncle helped connect me to actually the founders of Treyarch. They Call of Duty Black Ops. They had sold to Activision Blizzard. So they had only ever had one investor. And I ended up raising from him and the two founders of Treyarch, Peter and Dohan. So that was kind of interesting. We raised about 65K. And then from there, there were just additional investment tranches over the four years. But we collectively only raised 850K in total. I mean, we kind of hit through contract work, through kind of some of the stuff that happened with Ravenwood Fair, where our MG got flipped and they kind of became more of a second party deal instead of just a licensing deal. And so they paid us some money up front. And we were able to kind of sustain and grow the team through a combination of that. So there was never a moment where I had a pitch deck. And I went out and raised a million bucks. It was small summary decks over the course of three or four years of you know raising smaller amounts that would carry us, you know, hey, this will get the next game to market, or hey, this does enough in combination with some of the revenue we're generating. Yeah, that's like uh, in the US, the venture capital for gaming is there's a lot of differences from Europe. I think here it's easier to raise for content than it always has been. Like, how do you see that the climate there in the US? Europe certainly has a better environment, I think, for fundraising for game companies, especially early kind of seed stage companies. What brought me to the Bay Area, I got an opportunity to participate in an accelerator called YetiZen, which was a pretty early games-only accelerator that, especially the first couple of classes, we were the second session. You know, this was pre-Zenga. They did a great job at that time of bringing in some really big investors. And at the time, the Zynga narrative was... This is not a content, you know, hits-driven business. You know, you can actually define this in data science and it's more like a technology kind of growth startup. And so there was a lot of investor interest. I think in general, I struggled just being so young in raising from some of the official VCs, right? Or institutional venture investors. So I always raised from angels. Like eventually we picked up Mitch Liu and Rizwan and Irfan Verk, who had sold GameView Studios to DNA. They'd been angels into Funzio at the time. And they saw a talented young entrepreneur who'd put a cool team together, had had an Apple Game of the Week and Editor's Choice with one of our early games. And so I was always able to kind of parlay and raise these seed checks from a group of people. So it was kind of funny because my network, you know, just grew as I bounced around the country, you know, eventually settled in the Bay Area and it kind of expanded from there. Yeah, it's something that I think is still missing from the U.S. venture side is a really core set of games focused, you know, VCs. It's why it's exciting to hear that, you know, Phil Sanderson is, you know, he announced Griffin Gaming Partners at GDC and very hopeful to hear more news about that soon as he kind of opens that fund up and really starts to invest because we need more games focused venture in the United States. I think many entrepreneurs look at Europe and go, that may be the better place to build a gaming company today, just given the talent, the success stories that have come out of there and the ecosystem that's been built over the last, I'd say, decade around a lot of the early successes. So it's something that we're jealous of here in the United States. Certainly. Talking about foundation games and like the story going from there, when you moved to the Bay Area, you were building the games, like what eventually happened there? I moved to the Bay Area. We launched uh, Lumi, which was an Apple Game of the Week and Editor's Choice. So that was a huge win. It was a premium title. And so we had the, the featuring that happened over the course of that week. And we generated you know, enough money to pay for several months worth of burn in that week. And then it died off afterwards. And there was really not a good way to try and promote a premium gaming title. And so... That was kind of the moment where I realized, okay, we have to react to this free-to-play side and try and shift and pivot the team over to that. So Ravenwood Fair was the first attempt. You know, We ultimately did get that thing to market, but there was a lot of madness in six waves. It acquired Lolaps. 
you know, they were super unhappy that Lull Apps had licensed their largest game and a vast majority of its mobile revenue to this 21-year-old entrepreneur. And so we kind of struggled in the, the pivot and the change there. And so by the time that thing finally came to market, Six Waves was kind of not wanting to promote it a lot. And I got to kind of see firsthand how publishing relationships can go wrong for a developer. There's certainly a misalignment of incentives. I've rarely seen or heard of one that's done well. And kind of after that, I went through a round of layoffs. So we had to basically lay off half the studio. It's certainly a really, really tough moment for me and something that struggled to kind of get through. We came out the other side. Actually, this is kind of crazy little sidebar. To yeah. reduce burn, I even fired myself and tried to find a job in the Bay Area. And I thought, well, I've been a mobile game developer. You know, Where can I easily pick up a job? Ended up being at a small ad network called HeyZap. I lasted three weeks. They hired me to do BD and it was kind of a mutual thing after three weeks. It was like, listen, this is not my thing. I can't just come in and leave foundation behind. And I look back at that moment and it kicked me into gear. I left Hazap thinking, I'm not going to be able to cover my own rent unless I put myself back on the burn. If I put myself back on the burn, I'm going to have to fire someone else. And you know that was right at the moment like Mitch... Lou and Riz Swan Burke had put an angel investment in, and I ultimately was able through their network to find another individual to put a quarter million bucks in. And that happened two weeks after I was kind of laid off from like Hazap and stuff. So that was the kind of turning point moment where, okay, we now have enough money to take a run at, at a couple of other games. We were trying to do too much. To be perfectly honest, that was a huge, huge mistake of mine that I learned the hard way ultimately with Foundation Games, because we were trying to build Heroes of War, which was kind of a Clash of Clans fast follow that had a very a much deeper hero kind of collection mechanic. So you could put these heroes into battle and see them with special abilities and stuff. And we were also trying to fast follow, I guess, Jelly Splash from Wooga. We had a game called Moonster Blast that was pretty incredible, all these little minions. And it was one of the few games that I wish we'd had the opportunity to release because it really hit the bar, in my opinion, of it would have sat next to a Jelly Splash or a Candy Crush. And just the moments of joy, if you will, within the experience were really solid. But as we were struggling to get those games out, trying to do too much, I also had a team that I had recruited, like I was saying, out of the console industry. The vast majority of them had that background or they were straight out of game design school. Like they were not suited to designing free-to-play economies, to designing games as a service. Like with Ravenwood Fair, we could take a lot of what they were doing on Facebook, right, and attempt to replicate that on mobile. There was enough of an overlap. But we struggled with those final two games. Ultimately, kind of quickly summarize it, we got some contract work doing work-for-hire dev, building educational math games with a company called 2-Bit Circus that was founded by the founder of Atari's son, actually. And so that was sweet. We kind of hit this dream state where we were bringing in enough money to not only deliver on that and keep the kind of reduced team happy and you know around, but we had enough room to begin looking at our own IP and what we want to build. And so the, the kind of final vision was, well, we carry this contract for the 18 months that it's supposed to last and we'll be able to get a game out and make another attempt at you know, trying to have a successful mobile title. And then ultimately, that contract was pulled from 2-Bit Circus. And so we were one of the vendors. And that was kind of the, unfortunately, the final nail in the coffin for Foundation Games. And ultimately shut it down just a few months before I was 24, after about four years of operating the company daily. Wow. So like that feeling of the first company kind of like going to that mode of, you know, you've tried so many different things and then. You just need to pull the plug because it, yes. you know, each time you're kind of like going deeper into kind of some place where it's tougher to pull out of. It was. I knew the moment I got the email from 2-Bit Circus that their contract had been canceled and they you know, were going to be unable to pay any vendors and that they were shutting down the project, that it was time. I had pushed it as far as I felt I could. You know, it left me pretty jaded. I'd certainly not pivoted quick enough to free to play. And, you know, you start to look back at the mistakes you've made and think, and it's, it's tough. I think you can only really learn from them and move on. And I pretty quickly did. I mean, I started a side project in the social networking space, you know, a privacy focused kind of direct share social networking company. And I was like, I need a job 
because this is going to be a super hard space to attack. So how do I find a job and an opportunity that's going to cover my burn while we experiment and get something to market and stuff? And so trying to take a much leaner approach where foundation, you know, the young entrepreneur in me was like, I've got some money. I need to hire a team. I'm building a company. I'm doing all this and less focused on, you know, validating an idea in a market before really looking to kind of grow and scale it. So trying to learn from that mistake and Ultimately, my day job ended up being probably more entrepreneurial than I expected it to be. I actually co-founded a health technology startup called Access Health. It's still around today. They build a platform for post-operative telemedicine that was initially kind of targeted at orthopedic providers. So my co-founder was a spinal surgeon based in Southern California, and I joined as kind of the tech guy who knew how to build apps and really dove into that. can tell you this, it's about as far from mobile gaming as you can get is switching into a mobile healthcare app. <laughs> so it was a very different headspace and uh, uh, something that I think was refreshing, frankly, for the roller coaster that was Foundation Games. You were making a conscious choice to step away from the gaming industry there when you yes. went. I think I realized how hard it was going to be. Foundation taught me how hard it is to be successful in the mobile gaming space in a very real way. And so I think there was certainly this desire to step away from that and just attack something fresh, attack something different. But, you know, people would ask me, some of our investors, like, what do you want to do, right? Because like the Treyarch guys were like, well, you lost some money, but, you know, you're smart enough. Like, maybe you can come help us. And I was evaluating a bunch of different things. And I just said, I like to build products. I want to build something in software. I, I want to do that. And so... When the opportunity came up to attack a completely different industry vertical, I absolutely you know, jumped on it and, mm. uh, and was off to the races building that new telemedicine product. How long did you stay away from games then? <laughs> so about two years. About two years. That was all that could really keep me away, I guess. It's funny. Maybe I just like the pain. It was such a transition. Like healthcare has its own insane challenges, and in particular in the United States. Like it's a very slow move, being extremely risk adverse industry. That, you know, Access had its own challenges. You know, they were going after providers, you know, orthopedic providers. Providers are not the group that has the money. They're getting squeezed by the insurance companies. You know, patients aren't used to paying for healthcare. And when they do, they freak out, you know. It's this really tough challenge to attack. But the product, the actual building of the product felt easy to me, felt a lot easier. It's like, oh, I just need to make a software product that is you know, functional and user-friendly enough that a user can kind of come in and get their telemedicine episode done and out and they're happy. And you know, their prescription went to the CDS around the corner. Like, it felt easy. Because you know, games have that added layer of you know, person has to enjoy this enough, they're going to return tomorrow and the day after and the day after and the day after. And it doesn't sound like it, but that added layer of where is the joy that this individual is going to get out of this is kind of insane. So I think in some ways, I was destined to return back to gaming. But had you asked me a year or so after foundation, I would have said, hell no. (laughs) (laughs) Would have been like, nope, not for all the money in the world. Yeah, I think it's like something that returns to you after taking a pause. I think there's a lot of people who've gone through a similar kind of pause moment for sure. Absolutely. And I, you know, I certainly am not the smartest person in the room. So I think many people probably would have arrived at this earlier. But like I told you early on, I wanted to start a social network and, you know, that failed. And I started a gaming company and, and that failed. And then I pretty quickly after started this direct share privacy focused kind of social network. And that just struggled to get off the ground. And it really just became a private social network for my friends and I, right? Which was awesome in its own right. But once again, not a successful kind of entrepreneurial story. The light bulb moment for me, and one of the big reasons that kind of joining Beyond Games, getting back into the headspace that was mobile gaming, was this idea that you know, especially beyond games, the type of game that we're building, the type of experiences that we're trying to bring to market are fundamentally social networks that have game loops at their core. And it was this light bulb moment of like, wow, really what we're building is an experience that's going to get a community of players to come in and enjoy this experience and enjoy playing and coordinating and being competitive with each other. And it was that moment of like, I've had these two passions. And with Beyond Games, I think it's the first time that I've really put them together. Like it's incredibly important at Beyond Games that we keep in mind the social experience that's at the core of our game and fundamentally will be the crux of how we 
engage and monetize our players, our customers over years. So it's it's funny. It's funny. I look back on that and I'm like, Ugh, had I combined them earlier, you know, maybe uh, things would be different. There's but, always another game <laughs> that you exactly. need to make. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, cool to hear about Beyond Games. You're the CEO. What is the story of the company? Absolutely. It has a really interesting history. It started in 2013, actually. The CEO at the time was Nick Barjois, and he had come out of natural motion and taken a few engineers with him. And once again, pre-Zing IPO, Nick was a phenomenal pitcher and had a grand kind of vision of effectively fast-following machine zone that resonated with investors at the time, seeing you know the success of Game of War and Mobile Strike and just the story. And so Nick raised a very large seed in Series A rather quickly and ultimately kind of struggled to execute after that. You know, I look at Nick having failed multiple times as an entrepreneur, and I see a lot of you know, mistakes that were made that are just first-time entrepreneurship mistakes, you know, scaling up too fast, not hiring, you know, and, and really validating that you need this individual and this individual is going to be a fit and a value add and, and things like that. And so Beyond Games raised a lot of money, scaled up, was struggling to execute. And around that same time, a company called Americana Game Studio had been founded by an entrepreneur named Brett Saylor, who's a longtime friend of mine. He had kind of taken a different approach, which was, I don't want to go and raise a bunch of venture investment. I'm going to build a team, go and get third-party or second-party work, and hopefully have a piece of the upside, but get paid to build a game. So they'd been working with Amazon Game Studios uh, to produce some really high-fidelity kind of AAA content for, you know, to help push a lot of the Android, you know, Amazon App Store and the Fire tablets. People forget that that was a thing for a while. And ultimately, a new head of studios joined Amazon and promptly cut all their predecessors' projects. So Americana was one of, I think, eight or nine developers that lost their contracts at that point. And so Brett was kind of faced, well, now do I go and raise, you know, this company's kind of facing a wall, facing a cliff. What do I do? And around the same time, Nick Barjois had reached out to Brett and said, hey, here are some of the issues I'm running into. It sounds like you've got a really talented team. Let's talk. And so it was a thing about, you know, it was timing. It was, you know, a lot of these things are. And ultimately in mid-2016, Americana Game Studios merged into Beyond Games. And that kind of began a pretty rocky six-month transition period. And then roughly in January of 2017, I joined, you know, as GM to kind of help with the merger and, you know, solidifying the team that was going to take things forward. It's one of those things where we're choosing as a company to, I think, lean into the roller coaster that has been beyond games and certainly something that rather than try and sweep under the rug, we embrace to a certain extent because it's the team that has stuck it out through the roller coaster and the transition period. And that's certainly the reason I'm here and believe in you know us having an extremely bright future. But yeah, it's crazy to think about that this thing is, you know, was originally founded in February of 2013 still around today. Yeah. The thing that fascinated me about Beyond Games, you guys are like totally distributed. So you have yes. people working all over the place. It sort of like goes back to your story about having foundation games also set up in mm -hmm. several locations. So there's a lot of synergies with your past with this company, right? Certainly. I'm a huge believer in distributed teams. You know, I've been following Automatic is probably one of the earlier ones, uh, which is the company behind WordPress. And their CEO, Matt, I'm blanking on his last name. You know, he was one of the first, I think, to really push that as a legitimate way to kind of build companies. And they're highly, highly distributed, even more so than we are. I think the vision at Foundation Games was, I had a belief, which I, I think has been reinforced by many of the successful companies we've seen, including Supercells, like small Autonomous game teams are going to build the best experiences, are going to build the best games. And with Foundation, I wanted over time to grow Sydney to the point where, you know, it could build a game on its own and have the product, the design, the operational engineering resources, the art resources to make that possible. The same with Manila and eventually use really the US team as go to market and you know we're going to be the ones out there running UA and right and doing cross promo and the analytics on the games and things like that and trying to really grow and enable you know semi autonomous to autonomous teams so that they could go out and just put their passion into the game experience 
which I've always kind of attributed to supercell success. I think in some level that bar that they hit is that you can tell that the people that built that game are extremely passionate about the experience that they're delivering. And that's always been what I wanted to do. With Beyond Games, we have, so Johannesburg, a team in Johannesburg is our artists. So we have 2D and 3D art out there and some technical artists. They were at Americana. So we've worked with that team for a very, very long time, going back almost a decade now. So even pre-Americana. And then Beyond Games had a team in El Salvador, which was a really talented group of Unity engineers. And so I kind of stepped into this and said, oh, this is kind of familiar, right? You know, you got your art team over here, you have your engineering team over here, completely different locations than what Foundation had, but it certainly felt familiar. And I think over time, you learn to adapt. There's certain kind of qualities in terms of studio leadership that you're going to need to find to be able to like adequately manage and inspire and lead remote teams. And that's one thing that I think Beyond Games, especially post the Americana merger and many of the people we've hired kind of since the transition, we've really tried to target people who've worked with remote teams, right? And have that experience because, you know, yes, there are all these phenomenal collaboration tools, but you need to understand that, you know, when you're messaging somebody in Slack, you could come off with a certain tone you don't intend to, right? Being very cognizant of the fact, trying to do hangouts, trying to do face-to-face as much as possible. I think it's really, really important. And like I said, a lot of our team that's in leadership roles today has done that. You know, it's ex-Injimoko DNA folks who are like used to interacting with DNA Japan and their locations in Europe and stuff as they were really expanding and growing. And our product director previously at Wargaming, of course, they're very spread out. So trying to source people who are experienced there. I think it's too easy to say, oh, with Slack and Hangouts, it'll just work fine. We're just going to hire people. I don't know if that's been your experience, but certainly for me, You want people who understand and can be capable of communicating and motivating people without being in person. And it's a it's a difficult skill set, I think, to find hard to train to. Do do you have certain processes around like creating the culture around like being distributed and not physically being close to each other? And do you do like global meetups Mm -hmm. sometime in the year and stuff like that? We try and bring the studio leadership out every quarter. So whether, you know, the SF team goes out to Johannesburg like we did last quarter or the LSAL leadership comes up to San Francisco, we go down. And then in addition to that, we're putting in place kind of an exchange program where anyone who just wants to come work from one of the other offices for a while can do that. And so especially for team members who... Uh, a little bit more flexible, maybe aren't married yet or have children, you know, they're pretty excited about being able to kind of go and sit with the teams. I think a big part of it too, and this has been something that very early on, I kind of joined in this very ambiguous role. And ultimately, it took about six months before it was really broadcast, like, hey, Aaron is GM now working under Brett, is Nick was transitioning out, like, you know, and you kind of, I'm comfortable especially from the entrepreneurial side, dealing with ambiguity and like, you know, I'm just going to come in here and kind of make things work. But I remember talking with a very good friend of mine who's now the VP of engineering at Beyond Games. And I was saying, they're making me GM. And, you know, I just want to make sure I've got your buy-in and it doesn't feel like I'm just coming from the outside. And he just said, Aaron, assert yourself to the front. We need help, like make it happen. And I've tried to translate that to a lot of people that we've hired since and, and people who've stuck with us on the roller coaster is we really want people who see a problem and don't need permission to go and tackle that. And I mean, I'm just, I've got Slack muted. I'm sorry, man, I'm kind of having to work here. We're close to release. And I'm seeing, you know, engineers who are calling out UX issues right now in our Slack and our Mm -hmm. channel. And that's exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to reward and surface is this idea that anyone can and should contribute to the experience and own the quality of the experience. And It's not something that I can point you to this deck that we hand to employees or a handbook or anything like that. I think it's just something we're trying to engender in our culture as we communicate and interact. And it's tough. Remote makes that even harder because how does an engineer in El Salvador communicate to a designer in SF? And so we've done a lot of things. To your comment around process, maybe we do have some process. We have a lot of open channels. We try not to have too many private channels in our Slack where anyone can, you know, see visibility into a process. Funny sidebar, Battle Strike Force. We landed on the name Battle Strike Force because 
over the history of our company, we've found a problem. Like early on during kind of the pivot, the design pivot from Brink of War to Battle Strike Force, we knew that the battle code was going to have to be completely refactored. And so our VP of engineering took that on and like locked himself and a few other engineers in a room, in a conference room for a month and fixed it. And we called that the Battle Strike Force. And so over time, we've had an event strike force when we needed to kind of put our event framework and stuff together. And so it's resonated. And it's funny because we have all these public channels that just somebody will create, like, this is the thing I'm attacking. And, you know, anyone who can help dives into that and will try and contribute. Yeah. And you're still going to be evolving this process probably for years. And Oh, absolutely. It will never be perfect. And I think it will adapt as we continue to expand. I mean, we're 49 now and, you know, continuing to ramp up in our efforts to fully support the worldwide launch of Battle Strike Force. And so it's insane to think about. We have plans over the next 24 months to double headcount in El Salvador and Johannesburg, letting those teams, you know, once again, you know, semi-autonomously grow themselves and continue to build the cultures that they've been fostering over the last few years. And, you know, the SF team will need to grow to support that. I think at least to 20 people or so as we approach, you know, 100 total headcount. And that's something yeah. that, you know, I'll admit I've not done. You know, we're already double the size of foundation games, right? So it's, yeah. it's a learning experience for me again. And I think something that I just default to transparency in general. And, right. you know, I think that has its ups and downs because I've been transparent with the team in the past when we've struggled and things have been tight and we needed to execute on goals to survive as a company. And I will continue that path, I think, going forward, it certainly served me well so far. Yeah, that's definitely something that helps build the whole company. If, if the CEO is very transparent, there's trust all over the place. Absolutely. I think it scares some people from you know taking the jump in the hiring process because I try and be upfront with people. You're joining a startup. This is our make it or break it moment. It is happening. You know, things are looking really good. And that's why this, you know, team sitting here and in our locations globally is in it to win it and here every day. But I think some people aren't wanting to take that jump, right? And that's one of the ways we screen. Somebody that I scare away, we know is not going to be a fit. It's a funny approach to hiring. We'll see if it scales. That is interesting. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. Hey, let's talk about the the battle strike force that's coming out soon. It's super exciting and interesting. Can you describe the game and where the idea, the concept came from? Absolutely. Going back to the Americana Beyond Games merger, Beyond Games had been working on a title called Brink of War. And at the time of the merger, we felt that was the one to continue building versus the IP that Americana had been working on, which was a kind of high seas pirate MNO for mobile. So we dove into Brink of War, which was very much a like clash of clans meets world of tanks. So instead of a bunch of little soldiers and minions, you're having, you know, World War II themed tanks wrecking player bases, right? So it's kind of a, it's an interesting game, but what we figured out pretty early on was we felt like it had already missed the market. The market had evolved. You had the MZ titles and the Forex strategy genre that kind of came out of, you know, Game of War and Mobile Strike. And the team ultimately kind of chose to pivot more towards a Forex strategy game. But once again, attempting to differentiate in the market, we decided to kind of do, a, I guess what I'll call a genre mashup. So Battle Strike Force is now a kind of hero collection RPG that's paired with a Forex strategy MMO. So we have a massive world map like you would expect in a Forex strategy game capable of holding about 30,000 players in each continent as we build out the overall world as players join the community. And we wanted to pair that with an extremely deep hero collection meta. I mean, our thesis as a company kind of post-Americana's merger is let's take the really core social elements that are predominantly seen in Forex strategy today, and how can we take that and open it to a wider market? Because it's very clear that those social elements engage, retain, and monetize players over years. And that's very different from a hyper-casual or casual title. And so when looking at our entry point to the market, the desire was let's open up the fun of Forex strategy to this, to this wider market. And so hero collection made a lot of sense in that context, right? You know, giving a really deep hero collection meta. So there's something that players can collect and invest in and certainly get 
excited about unlocking and, and things like that. And so it's been a really interesting process of taking these two genres, which haven't to date really been mashed together. I certainly think, I mean, Lords Mobile is a decent example of a title that sort of went in that direction. We have a lot deeper hero collection meta than they do and some really interesting I guess I should kind of talk about the softer on-ramp that we built for players. That's another problem for X strategy typically just burns players very quickly. And, you know, you see this extremely steep drop-off even from day zero to day one and certainly to day seven. And the idea was how do we make this experience more friendly to early players? So we did a lot of things with the world map, introducing zones, which had their own rule sets. So players launch in the trenches there's no PvP in the trenches. You know, some elder game player can't come in and seal club. So doing things like that to help more slowly and incrementally ramp players into the 4X strategy experience, I think has certainly gone a long way in the retention numbers that we're currently seeing and stuff. And me shows that we're making progress towards our thesis. We can actually take this traditionally really core kind of gameplay and bring it to a wider market. And things like PvE, like we have a super extensive PvE set of campaign content that introduces players to our world fiction, to the heroes. The heroes have dialogue. They interact with each other. They interact with Stallone's character, Jasper Reese. And so we've really tried to build something that to the player community and to the world is going to feel fresh and not feel like a game they've played before. It's very interesting to see. Like I've had a lot of experience working with IP Mm-hmm. and talent and you guys are collaborating with uh, Sylvester Stallone for this game mm-hmm. can you talk about the collaboration there and how have you seen basically the return on investment working like with a superstar like him yeah absolutely I mean we're obviously incredibly pumped and honored that he took a chance on uh, the team and our game I think we won the deal initially because our game just looks phenomenal you know using full 3d assets and effects it, it just doesn't look like anything, in, certainly in the Forex strategy genre. And so that attracted him to it. He's also, you know, just competitive and he and Schwarzenegger are friends. So he obviously knew about Mobile Strike and the success that it had been. So I think we played off his rivalry there a little bit. And I, you know, I have to give him credit. He took a very entrepreneurial bet on us as a company. You know, we did not pay him some massive MG up front. He is in it for the long haul. And that was kind of the final, I think, connecting point that helped us win the deal and has really been our experience working with him thus far is, you know, we sold him on the idea too that Jasper Reese would be a not just on the app icon and as a part of the tutorial, but a reoccurring character in our world fiction. Jasper Reese leads the resistance against the evil Iron Order, right? Our year one bad guy is the crow and he's, you know, Jasper Reese's ultimate enemy. We even have like a kind of CGI comic booky intro that's coming in, not this release, but the next release that tells the story. And you kind of see young Jasper Reese failing to defend the Capitol against an Iron Order attack. And now he's 15, 20 years later in the future, leading this ragtag resistance and recruiting the player to join that. And so that has certainly resonated with Stallone. We did some voiceover work pretty early on where once he got comfortable, he just started riffing. And we've put most of that in the game. So if the player's doing well in battle, like Stallone gives him the shout out. If they lose, he'll give them shit sometimes. Like it's really fun to see him just loosen up and play a character he knows how to play. I mean, Jasper Reese is Rambo. Jasper Reese is Rocky to a certain extent. So it really played off of Stallone's brand and a character that's been reoccurring in a lot of the filmography that he's done. Uh, Collaboration is kind of, I shouldn't say culminated, but it ramped up earlier this year when we shot some live action footage with him of him in costume as Jasper Reese preparing for the war effort. And so we have a lot of really high quality creative that we're stitching in with gameplay and just pure CGI sequences that our team in Johannesburg has done that look phenomenal. And so we're really stocked with a lot of high fidelity creative on that front. And the last thing I'll say about the collaboration that's just been awesome is he's pretty laid back. For the superstar that he is, he's pretty laid back. Like he runs his own Instagram. He is the one posting to his Instagram from his phone, like wherever he may be in the world. And so you know, over the past few months, we've gotten a couple of shout outs from him directly on his Instagram. And we didn't have to prompt that we didn't have to go through a bunch an agency, we didn't have to go through, you know, a bunch of publicist checks. It's been 
kind of unexpected, but we're certainly thankful for the close collaboration that we have with them. I'm very, very excited to kind of see what happens as we go worldwide in the coming weeks and start to get shout outs from him and push a lot of the hero creative that we've done with him in character and go from there. But it'll certainly be exciting. Yeah. You don't get to work with Rambo every day. so (laughs) Exactly. I mean, and that's another thing too. The timing couldn't be more perfect Uh, on September 20th. Rambo 5 launches. And so we're doing some kind of, we're doing a Kill the Cartel event in game that's coming up. That'll be super fun. Jasper Reese is going to have players seeking these special bases on the world map. There'll be a lot of reason for guilds to compete over that. And, you know, it's fun. And we weren't forced to do that. We're just doing that to support Stallone and his other stuff, you know, that he has going on. And that's really what I appreciate and respect about the relationship we've built with him. Yeah, it's getting closer to his, like, work. It's definitely beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talk about IP and applying it correctly to games, right? You want to find an IP. Obviously, it's going to have a crossover with your core demo. You know, the core demo of Forex strategy is 35, 55-year-old males, right? And typically, there's a huge overlap with Stallone fans and people who've been a you know fan of his for decades now. And so it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, especially... You know, for example, the first thing he posted to his Instagram was a casual video he took while we were filming the live action creative that we were doing with him. And very much just, I'm working on a new game. I'm pumped about it. Here's the team. He like showed off the camera crew and everybody that had worked their ass off that day. And it's cool to see that. And uh, my hope is that fans really appreciate that this isn't a cash grab for him. He like legitimately believes in mobile. And he's smart enough to also see how mobile has outgrown and outstriped film and TV. So, you know, it's funny. He's taking an entrepreneurial bet. He sees a space moving in a direction that he's excited about. And and we're certainly happy he picked us to collaborate with. Yeah, it is cool. It must sort of like change the way that Beyond Games, your team is also like pumped about this opportunity because it's a different kind of thing when you're working with external IP and when it's as cool as Sylvester Stallone. It's no, absolutely different. Absolutely. I mean, our art team especially has done some crazy cool things on the marketing front with him. And, you know, we've done one where it's kind of like, it's a play on the Uncle Sam, I want you to join the US military. And it's Jasper Reese, I want you to join the resistance. And just putting out this, he just has such an incredible kind of brand that's such a fit with Battlestrike Force that it's just been fun to drive that collaboration. And you know, to your point, absolutely. It's been incredibly motivational to the team to also just see like when we got the first unsolicited shout out on his Instagram, like I'm not, that's not a PR push. That is just the truth. That's what happened. And to have a celebrity of that magnitude who was sitting wherever he was in the world that Saturday thinking about the game and chose to blast it out to 17 million followers on Instagram. It's cool to have that. And we certainly hope to see a lot of success in the coming months and, uh, you know, continue to double down on that in 2020 with him. Awesome. Hey, let's go back a bit into the entrepreneurial aspect. And I wanted to ask you this one question. Like if you'd have a time machine and you could go back to when you were founding Foundation Games, what would your advice be for starting your first games company? That's such a good question. There's so much advice. I'd probably need to sit myself down and you know spend time back in the dorm room. I think the, the thing that immediately comes to mind is pick your focus and put everything into that. We were almost always trying to build one or two titles at once. And that was in some ways a necessity because we were just attempting to get games out as quickly as we could. And, you know, in in some ways we were able to kind of stagger development and things like that, but we should have picked one game every time. This is the thing we're going to put, you know, the next 12 to 18 months into and focused exclusively on that. I think beyond it, it would have been like, listen, you're going to be able to make money by giving away a game for free. 19 year old me did not believe that was going to be possible. And it just seems crazy now. But when Angry Birds cut the rope and finished, those are the successes, those are the top grocers, those are, you know, what's leading the charge on this new platform. I, I chose to follow that. And I think, you know, the big tidbit would be hey, you're going to crush everybody else on the acquisition side if you go free. Like there's nothing better than that. 
and you can make money on the back end. So it would have absolutely been a, you know, focus on one game, make it free to play. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you have like a team who's trying to build their first game, but they're unable to raise funding to actually go forward with their plans as they are, what would be your advice there for them to get forward when they're just getting a lot of no's from investors? Certainly a tough place to be in. I think it's a bit dependent. You know, is the team capable of building the game in a kind of part-time capacity? You know, I look at, this is not a free-to-play game, but Cuphead. I don't know if you've played that at all on consoles. It's extremely hard to beat. It's got a phenomenal Steamboat Willie art style. And the history of that game is insane because it took like a decade to build. And the developers, initially two brothers, worked on it in their free time forever. They were just passionate about it. They kept it going. Eventually, they built a full team around it. Eventually, they released it. Now, it's been extremely successful, but it took forever to do that. And so for me, it's like find a team that has similar passions, that wants to build this thing, and you will figure out a way to get it to market. If you are approaching it from the angle of, I need to raise a million bucks to hire a team and go about it, like you haven't found the right group of people who's just going to, that wants to see that thing get to market. I think it's a hard, especially for, so I'm a non-technical founder, right? And, you know, I've never written a line of software in my life. And so I needed to find an engineer at the very you know least that was willing to work with me on foundation games. And you know, another piece of potential advice to myself would have been try and find a technical co-founder. <laughs> so I didn't do that. And we probably would have gotten a lot further having, you know, somebody that could have progressed the games even if we'd had to lean the studio and stuff out. I don't know if I answered your question directly, but I think that the wrong approach for an entrepreneur is here's an idea I have. Give me millions of dollars to go out and build this. It's more like convince a core group of people who want to work on that for free, frankly. <laughs> I guess it's more about, you know, usually the group haven't really decided if they're going to work on it for free. They're just trying to get the money together so that then they could continue. But I think that's a fair point. You know, my response is kind of like, take it as far as you can. I get the statement of, I have a family, right? I can't, you know, leave my day job. But it's like, well, are you willing to spend six months of your evenings and weekends progressing this game to the point that you can get an investor to believe in it? Because I think the further you get in getting your idea into a state that it's playable and can be experienced by an investor, the easier it's going to be to raise that funding, right? So it's definitely the tough path. But I think the further you can make it without raising, the better off you're going to be, the better terms you're going to get, and the more interest you will get in your team and what you have going on. Great. Hey, let's go into some final questions here. What's your favorite book and why? I thought about this one a lot. I'll give you my favorite book series, the Foundation Series, which is a book series by Isaac Asimov. I named my first company after it, and it's a epic kind of sci-fi space opera. And I just loved it. It's kind of funny. They're not necessarily the most exciting books. They're a little dry. They're very like, it's not a lot of space battles and stuff. It's more about the political side of it. And it kind of, but I love that IP. And it's something that I've gone back to many, many times over the years. Uh, And I'm excited to hear that, you know, Apple is producing a TV series after it that I believe comes out in the next few years. So it's something I'm excited to see as a longtime fan of the series. And just Isaac Asimov in general is a phenomenal writer, one of my favorite writers of all time, for sure. Yeah. Do you have a story that has shaped how you approach your work? Certainly a lot comes to mind from the Foundation Games side of things. So when I hired people at Foundation Games, I just tried to hire people I felt could fill the role. Right. Makes sense. You know, this person, you know, we need a 3D artist or an animator. Like, can they animate? What's their portfolio like? Are they willing to work for, you know, horrifyingly bad wages and join this kind of crazy roller coaster? But what I've learned, and I think, especially with Beyond Games, and hopefully, you know, as long as I'm doing this in the future, I've tried to adapt and find people that win, lose, or draw on this project 
I want to work with again and again and again. And I've been extremely lucky and thankful to have found a core group of people, both here in San Francisco and across the globe now, that I genuinely will work with again, you know, if Beyond Games is successful or fails. And that's something, taking a longer approach, just thinking in decades, like, will I want to work with this person a decade from now and not focusing on the short term? I just have a need and I need somebody to fulfill that need. And I think it causes you to naturally hire slower. And I think that's generally a good thing. And a lot of that comes out of foundation games stuff where I think I hired really talented people. I didn't necessarily hire and attempt to build a long-term relationship with a lot of these people. And I, I have some regrets around that for sure. But it's absolutely shaped how I look to hire and, and work with people now. That's a great one, Aaron. I have a last one for you. Where can sure. people find more about the game and the company and yourself? Certainly. I would head to beyondgames.co. That's our website. It'll head to all of our social media. We're about to launch a blog on Medium as well that I'm writing the first post for right now, which opens up about my entrepreneurial roller coaster and this kind of crazy story that's been beyond games, as well as the opportunity that's ahead of us with the release of Battle Strike Force. So we're going to start to really expand upon that with this initial post and future plan posts and hopefully, you know, help in some ways similar to what you're building here with this podcast, like become a place for entrepreneurs in the space that don't want the PR puff piece that want the real story behind how games get shipped and, and get to market and the struggles of being successful in this industry. So beyondgames.co is the starting point for all things BG, myself, and everything that we have going on with the worldwide release of Battlestrike Force. Great. Good stuff. I'll make sure the listeners find your blog when it's up. Perfect. Yeah, I will absolutely hit you up when I've got it out in the next week or so. Good stuff. Hey, thanks, Aaron, so much. And hope you have a good day and a, like the excellent game launch coming. Absolutely. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for the time. And we'll certainly catch up soon. Will do. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you move on, please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is live. See you next week. Bye-bye.